Conservation Tribe. I'm your host, Blaine Edwards, aka Earth Offline. On this podcast, I talk with a range of conservationists every single week, from scientists, students, creatives, innovators, and everyone in between. I hope this can be a platform for conservationists to share their story, educate, collaborate, and ultimately inspire action. So if you want to join our conservation tribe, then make sure to hit subscribe and enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to the Conservation Tribe. Today we are joined by Misa Winters, a DNA scientist and molecular lab manager at Conservation X Labs. Misa, thank you for coming on the show. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Excited. So in today's episode, we've got to explore a couple of things. Uh, one thing that I want to explore is the work that you've done as a DNA scientist tracking the illegal poaching of African elephants through seized ivory DNA. And then the second is kind of just a general conversation around the importance of optimism, the importance of innovation and creativity in this world of conservation. But before we get stuck into that, can you please introduce yourself to the podcast? Yeah. So you said I'm Misa Winters. I'm a molecular DNA scientist. Um, I kind of started in the ancient DNA field. That's how I got my master's. And so that was that was really fun. I worked as a molecular anthropologist and worked with a lot of really fun old samples, bones and teeth and uh, coprolates, which are fossilized poop. And that kind of gave me this passion for troubleshooting of sorts, because it's always notoriously difficult to get DNA out of things that are so old. But what the DNA does a lot of these times is it gives you information about the people um, and how they lived, because we mostly looked at Native Americans at that time. And then that's kind of created, it created just a passion for my life. And I'm really lucky that um, I was able to translate this sort of um, DNA speciality, working with really tough samples and translate it to wildlife conservation. So yeah, I worked for five years at the Center for Conservation, which is where I worked with elephant ivory. Ivory itself is a very difficult medium to get DNA out of. Uh, We also did a lot of scat work because it was a non-invasive lab. So, you know, we never... All the species that we did studies on, we never wanted to stress them or bother them in the wild. So we actually used conservation dogs to go out and collect hmm. scat all over the field. And then they would come back to the lab and we would do a series of things. So, yeah, we, we got really into poop and really into ivory. And then um, I'm really lucky that I got to switch over to Conservation X Labs. And now I'm trying to help create a portable field device that could extract and analyze DNA by scientists and non-scientists alike. And so that has a number of kind of molecular hurdles that we have to get through to um, make that possible. Mm-hmm. Um, before we dive into your, your work uh, as a DNA scientist in, in Africa, can we just quickly touch over what exactly is the illegal ivory trade and why that is a problem? Yeah, um, so it's kind of it's kind of a big question. So it's basically the illegal killing of elephants. And there's three extant species of elephants currently. We have two African elephants. We have the forest and the savanna or the bush elephant. And then we have the Asian elephant. Um, all of them have tusks, but with the African elephants, both males and females have tusks, whereas the Asian elephants, the males have tusks. So the African elephants are a little bit more exploited in this way. So this, this trade basically got a lot of global acknowledgement in the 80s when we kind of discovered that we'd killed about half of the population, which was 600,000 elephants about. And um, this continues to occur uh, even currently. So we estimate there's about 40,000 elephants that are being killed every year. And this is just for the purpose of harvesting their tusk. 
many people wonder, you know, like, why do they have to be killed? These are very large animals in groups. They're very defensive within their groups. You can't just walk up to them and dart them or anything like that. And the, the tusk itself is a modified tooth. So it's just an elongated molar, essentially. So a third of it is in the gum line, is in the skull itself. So they have to go in and get that part as well, or else you know, a third of the value is not being harvested. So this is a transnational issue. Um, most elephants killed in Africa, the ivory is then shipped out all over the world. Usually Asia gets the biggest bad rap for that, so to speak. But you know, Europe and US are also very large ivory markets. So yeah, it's that's the trade. And it's a problem because we're driving multiple species to extinction just for a trophy, essentially. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be a complex problem in, in that it's it's not just a ivory trade industry. It's linked with drugs, human trafficking, all these different things. And it just seems to be so complex, so complex, but important to to tackle the problem however we can. In terms of tackling the problem, though, why is this a problem that we should be addressing? Like, why should elephants be protected beyond just being a visible, well-known and empathetic species? Yeah, so... You know, like large animals in general, we tend to be more empathetic towards because they're big and we've known them, we know about them all our lives and they're special, largest land animal on earth. But, you know, why should we care? Kind of always the important question. Why is this species worth saving versus other species? And I would always argue that every species is probably worth saving. Mm-hmm. Took them a long time to get here, just like us. So um, as I mentioned, there's three species. The two African elephants, there's the forest and the savanna. The forests, as it sounds, they live mostly in the Central African rainforest. Um, so that's kind of the, the very central median of the African continent. They actually are considered mega gardener, like they're forest gardeners, I should say. So they're they're all mega herbivores, and they're they're also very non-specialized in what they eat. They will eat anything. They just go through the forest and sticks, leaves, whatever, bugs. It all goes in. And so that kind of allows them to, they eat the seeds of more species than any other large herbivore. Uh, the Asian elephants are also, this is also true of them, because they're mostly in forest environments. So there's studies that show that these, these elephants are really critical for maintaining the diversity of, and the health of the forest. Because, you know, think about the, the seed goes in, it gestates, they poop it out. And now they've dispersed this seed in this probably very large period of uh, distance. And the poop is a very nutrient-rich source for that tree to now grow in Germany. Uh, and then you think about why it's important to have healthy forests. Well, you know, the Central African rainforest is the second largest carbon sink in the planet next to the Amazon. Maintaining that healthy planet is in the best interest of everybody. So there's obviously an ecological importance there. And there also seems to be an economic importance as well in terms of, yeah. I guess, ecotourism and stuff like that. But we'll kind of go back to the illegal ivory trade a, a wee bit. Um, what are the underlying drivers of the illegal ivory trade and who are the stakeholders of it? Yeah, so as far as I can tell, the driver is really just that ivory is considered rarer than gold. And the people who buy it, um, it's, it's meant to be used as a status symbol. But I mean, I've honestly kind of scoured this question a little bit because to me, it's still hard to understand like, okay, Sure, ivory is rare and it's nice to have a carving and to have this aesthetically pleasing thing, I guess, displayed. But to, to know that it's being done at such a massive scale, it's still kind of confusing to understand that drive. But I mean, the illegal wildlife trade is 
worth $20 billion annually. Um, and so that includes elephants and rhino and tiger. So it's, it's not unusual that we would be exploiting an animal um, and killing it for parts of it, because we do that with many, many animals. So it's just, you know, the driver is just, we as humans have this fascination and, and need to display parts of these animals in our homes and uh, as some kind of social status. And I, I had a friend, you know, I, who I used to work with at the center, she kind of equates it to like diamonds, you know, for a long time, it, it wasn't really a big deal to have it. And then suddenly we learn that it's rare. I mean, with diamonds, it's an inflation. It's, it's not actually rare. We create a false rarity. And in some ways they do that with the ivory trade as well. You know, like these governments stockpile the tusks, you know, maybe there's elephants that have died naturally. And they stockpile those and they consider it an asset. And they sometimes barter that, oh, can we sell this ivory uh, as an asset? And then we can take that money and put it back into the country and use it for conservation. Um, and that's not always the case. So, yeah, the, the stakeholders are, are kind of like we have this huge demand structure, mostly in Asia, unfortunately. Um, and that's partially because, you know, like in the late 90s, China went through this big economic boom. And, and it's the same it's that same conundrum that keeps occurring of like, OK, so these countries are you know, coming behind the U.S., coming behind Europe, they want to have the same luxuries. They want to have the same access to technology and infrastructure that we do. And they want to be able to spend money on lucrative things that they don't necessarily need, you know. And ivory for them is one of those things. It's not the same as rhino horn. You know, rhino horn, is, it has additional properties attached to it that don't really make sense. Ivory, they don't really use it for any medicinal purpose. It's really just to display. And so that's really drives it, Yeah. Yeah, so so we've kind of touched on what the problem is, maybe some potential drivers around it and why it's an important thing to solve. So how can we use DNA? Why is DNA important to combat the illegal ivory trade? Right, so there's a couple of reasons why it's important. Uh, and this is becoming true, of not just ivory, but many other aspects of the wildlife trade. So with tusks, when they're just in front of you, non-processed, sometimes you can tell which species it is, but that is not 100% possible. So like the, the tusk itself at the base, if you cut it cross-sectionally, they have these kind of like these interwoven lines, they're called trigger lines. You can kind of tell the species apart that way. But if it's, if it's carved, you know, you wouldn't necessarily be able to do that. So just, you know, it's the typical, you have a raw piece of material, just looking at it, you wouldn't be able to say, which elephant did it come from, much less which country did it come from? You know, so elephants have a pretty huge distributional range all over Africa. And whether or not it's forest, whether or not it's a savanna elephant is also really critical because forest elephants um, have been poached at a much higher rate than savanna elephants because they're in the forest. So when the poachers come in, they're they're actually protected, like visually. So they can kind of take their time and they're not going to be, it's not going to be as easy to discover what they've done versus in the savanna elephants, you know, it's a much more wide open area. Uh, rangers are patrolling aerial surveys. They'll see a carcass. So um, anyway, so. Knowing a forest elephant versus savannah is also really important because one is much more threatened, similar to tigers in that way. Some subpopulations are much more threatened. And then, so like I said, the, the country it comes from is, is really important too, because if you can tie, you know, if you say, oh, this seizure, as in a bunch of tusks were seized in Kenya on their way out to somewhere, and then they say, oh, no, it's, it's elephant tusks from Kenya. They're from our stockpile. But then the DNA even says, no, they're not. They're from Tanzania. They're from Uganda. So that's a transnational crime um, once you can link it to other countries. And it's illegal to move elephant ivory to other countries. 
Yeah. So you, I guess you have this ivory tusk seizure and you, you kind of check out perhaps where those tusks are from, but how do you know where they're from? Like, yeah, how does that work? Like, how do you know that it's actually from Kenya or actually from a different country? Yeah. So that's a very complicated answer, so to speak. So, you know, the, the director for the center, uh, Dr. Sam Wasser, he actually started this project, um, I think at least over 20 years ago. And so it, 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 and it took until like 2015 before we ever published results on um, the findings. So it, it takes a long time to <laughs> answer that question. And that's because uh, you have to kind of sample the genetic population of elephants across the African landscape. So uh, he worked with numerous organizations and rangers, and, you know, governments, countries uh, all over Africa and asked them to send us files of poop and then we were able to do a genetic analysis of that poop. And it's really similar to what like the FBI does with uh, human forensic profiling. So we call, you know, there's that concept of DNA fingerprinting. And that just means that they look at a series of DNA markers that because they're hyper variable, they mutate really rapidly and they're inherited by parents. Um, You can link all these together and you can create these probabilities and what we call allele frequencies. And that helps you kind of map what each genetic population signature looks like. Um, and because elephants live in these like matriarchal groups, like their families are related, uh, that means that, you know, the populations become a bit conserved over time. So the way he kind of structured it is he tried to get elephant poop from every single like protected area in Africa as much as possible. Um, and then through fancy math and algorithms, you know, because you can't, you can't get every single population, you know, because again, you're asking people physically to go out and find some poop and send it back to us and get it all the way to the U.S. and uh, do this analysis. Um, so there are, there are going to be kind of genetic gaps and you use this kind of smoothing algorithm because, you know, oh, so in this area, this is genetics look like, in this area, this is what the genetic looks like. So in the middle, we can kind of extrapolate what the genetics look like. So I believe the the poop map that we made, as we kind of refer to, so we know we have examples of populations from both species, and uh, there's quite a bit of kind of quality control that goes into that to make sure that we're not sampling the same individual multiple times and not inflating the genetic score of sorts. But I think it's like like 90 countries or something like that, and uh, like over 160 locations where elephant poop was recovered and we did genetic analyses on. So that's just the beginning is the poop map to know like, okay, what do the genetics look like? And then when the ivory seizure happens and then that gets sampled uh, and you do, you conduct the same genetic analysis and then you kind of can plug it in um, and ask this program, this algorithm, okay, here's what the frequencies look like. What does that most closely match along our map? And that's how you use the DNA. Okay. So the first step is creating like a database of poop. And the yeah. human equivalent is like we've seen the movies where, uh, and reality as well, but we have like fingerprint database. And then so if a human does a crime, they can, you know, get another fingerprint and then match that with their database and then they can identify blah, blah, blah. So that's this pretty much what you're doing is um, this, this, the same thing. Okay. Yeah. So when you're compiling that database and you get, you get these poo samples. So you're obviously based in the States and in, in America. What does that process look like? So 
like rangers collect the poo, they put it in a little envelope and then they ship it off to uh, America. Is that how it works? What does that look like? Yeah, so it's definitely not a perfect system because we try to be as, um, trying to make it as easy as possible. So we, in the lab, we, we send them vials and the vial contains a mixture of DMSO, um, which is, you know, it's like it's something that they use in soaps and it's kind of a, it's sort of a preservative Sort of not, but the point is, it's not going to like damage the sample. Okay. Um, so we send that to them wherever they are, and going through the permitting. And for for a long time, we had to have like a USDA like license to do this. You know, and you're sending this kind of unknown compound, and so you have all these letters of like, this is what it is, and we promise it's fine and safe, and no one, it's not going to hurt you. And, um, so we send it to whatever contact we have in that country, and then we kind of give them a set of instructions. It's sort of like you know, when you're out, when you're just doing a normal patrol. If you see an elephant poop, just grab like a golf ball size and plop it in. So we don't need very much of the poop. And then uh, once they have enough, like 20 vials or so, we we then ship it back. Like So we pay for the shipping and kind of help coordinate that. You don't really need a permit to ship elephant poop. You do <laughs> definitely need a permit to ship elephant ivory. <laughs> so so, so they, they can be various ages. You know, like they, they might have been hanging out in whatever country for months, weeks, not sure. So the success rate of the analysis from the poop is definitely um, much lower than with the ivory because we, we can't control for all of the deterioration variables that might have occurred. Mm-hmm. And so based on the research that you've done so far, where are the kind of the hotspots for elephant poaching? Yeah, so in the paper that we published in 2015, so that was after analyzing, um, I think, 30 seizures over the course of like between the late 90s through like 2013. So there were two main hotspots and they're basically based on whether it was savannah or forest. So the forest elephant hotspot was in Gabon and Congo. So the heart of the rainforest. And then with savannah, it was all centered around Tanzania. And there was actually sort of a, you could kind of see this very interesting pathway. So like it started in Mozambique, slowly went north through Tanzania. Like you could see it, like as these, these seizures would occur, you could see like with, through time and space, like, they're hitting this spot and then they're going north and then they're going more north and they're going more north and then all the way to the point where they're in South Kenya. Uh, and so I remember we were super excited with this finding because it's like, okay, we've done it. You know, we've, we've found that it's not this sporadic, random, someone just goes out because they really want to feed their family and they need money and uh, they just kill an elephant at random. It's like, no, this is a very systematic, you know, controlled Thing. It's like purging um, through an entire country. So we thought for sure that that would blow everything wide open. And it would be, you know, we've, we've shown law enforcement, this is where it's happening. This is where you need to go. Um, and it, it did not have that effect, <laughs> really. Why is that? Um, but it, I don't, I mean, it just, nothing really happened um, afterward. And we thought for sure that there would be this mass kind of response to like, okay, we got to, I mean, granted the, the president of Tanzania did change hands around that time and um, they did start having a little bit more efforts towards conservation. Kenya has always been um, very proud of their wildlife and they protect it. Um, and they have a lot of, they have considerably more assets in order to, to do that. You know, like their ranger program is a little bit more supported. Um, but yeah, there wasn't necessarily this response that we thought would happen. We're like, okay, like we're, we're going to deploy massive law enforcement and catch these people and, and prevent the killing at some um, location because we're kind of showing like, it's, here's the pathway, this is where it's going. 
I don't know if it's just a matter of resources or just the politics are involved with that. But yeah, nothing really happened. <laughs> hmm. So it seems to like raise the idea of just how complex this is. Like you're presenting this evidence, but there seems to be something else that supersedes that. Like there is, there is another influence in play that it's like we see your evidence, but it's just not enough. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of it is just there's sort of that question of like well, who's responsible for fixing it? You know, uh, yeah. are we going to hold Tanzania accountable? Like, what are we going to do? And so that's kind of when we shifted. So what 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 ended up happening was this very interesting like step of events is that it's so when these seizures happen. A lot of times, Dr. Wasser he would go physically to like Dubai or Singapore. Vietnam, wherever this that had been seized, you know, goes out of Africa, gets seized in an Asian country sometimes. And so they have thousands of tusks and there's this really intense series of events that goes through like sampling a seizure because, you know, so we don't want a thousand tusks to analyze in the lab. Um, there's kind of a statistical reason why of a thousand, you know, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 tusks, if we sample them in a careful way, we only need about 200 samples in order to get like a picture of um, where all the animals are coming from. Cause again, like you can probably assume on some level um, if they they've gone and, and killed like a group of elephants. So that group, they all kind of share the same genetic signature. And so we're trying to capture among those 4,000 tusks, where did it all come from? So we only take 200, but so in the course of that sampling period though, like the first thing we do is we try to like line all the tusks up together by size because you want to pair them up. So hopefully you can find, you know, one elephant has two tusks. Hopefully you find both those tusks because you don't want to sample both. You just want one because you don't need the genetic identification twice from the same elephant. And so they, they were starting to notice these seizures where there's this large proportion of tusks that don't have a matching pair. And, and it is true that some elephants don't have two tusks, but it just seemed odd. So then we kind of opened up our database and started asking the question, on an individual sample level, is there a match in a different seizure? And we started finding matches. We started finding like, oh, the same two tusks from one elephant are present both in this seizure at this time and place and this seizure at this time and place. So now you have these links between seizures. So now it starts opening up this even like bigger understanding of like, oh, okay, so it's, it's, it's very organized. You know, this elephant was killed. It was moved from Tanzania to a warehouse in Uganda. And that was where it was then like put on a truck and then sent to Kenya and then shipped out of Mombasa. And, and we know this because we started working with Interpol and other law enforcement agencies that had kind of information tied to the seizure, you know, because they want to prosecute as much as we do, but it's a lot harder for them. It's like this very tenuous thing because when if a seizure just shows up, a lot of times like it's coming out of a different country from where it's poached, like almost always. And then like trying to tie it to any one person is like almost impossible because uh, like the seizures where they actually find it in the home of somebody mm-hmm. is not as common. And then when that does happen too, you want to be able to say like, oh yeah, you found, you physically have evidence that this person was like in the same room as the ivory. So now if you can tie that seizure to other seizures, now that person is a transnational criminal uh, and you'll have a higher prison sentence because if they're saying prosecutions for you know, possessing ivory are not very, not very high, like maybe 18 months in jail, maybe a fine. Okay. So you're working on a product uh, with the aim to democratize DNA in order to help save lives and protect the planet. Can you please talk about that? Yeah. So 
nice tangent into my current job with the Conservation X Lab. So I'm part of a team and we are creating what is called the DNA barcode identification tool, or we also call it the DNA barcode scanner. It has a couple different names. We gotta market it, figure out what makes <laughs> sense. But yeah. the whole idea is that um, we think about this a lot. We think, it's, and it's not just like illegal wildlife trade. It certainly has a lot of applications to that. But um, you know, more and more DNA is becoming a bit of a standard when it comes to what is this? I want proof that this is what they say it is. So. We are trying to design a, a portable, cost-effective, like relatively inexpensive device that can be used by scientists and non-scientists alike. Um, and the reason behind that, is, and that's where the democratizing comes from. You know, we want to make this very accessible to anybody who's interested in utilizing DNA to answer a question. And we particularly would like that question to be related to conservation, but it doesn't have to be. <laughs> and um, so kind of what it does, you know, it's small and you can take it anywhere. Supposedly that's the constraint we have. It's powered by a battery. And then we make these kind of cartridges that contain the, the, all the reagents, all of the, the chemistry, the recipe. of um, to, uh, It's kind of based on a presence-absence format right now. So, you know, the test would be yes or no Atlantic salmon, yes or no elephant. And eventually it'll become more sophisticated uh, okay. but that's kind of the premise at the moment so if you're saying if you're asking this device is it salmon then what happens like what are you putting into the device for it to answer that question yeah so our, our initial prototype utilizes fresh or frozen fish fillets so you would just have a little swab just like you know a human crime scene investigator would go in and they'd swab a surface you'd swab the fish and uh there's a lysis tube they put the swab into, and then that's what uh, extracting the DNA. And so, like, that's all meant to be kind of automated. Like, you don't have to pipette or um, transfer anything around or add anything. And then uh, so the, it, it goes through a kind of a heat step of sorts. And then the user would then have to transfer some volume of that into the cartridge, mm -hmm. which will then go into the device. And then the device will say yes or no, whatever the species is. So, the current prototype is your. You have to put in, is it this? And then you put in the sample and then it says, yes, it is this or no, it isn't. Obviously in the future, you're hoping to remove that first part probably and just put in a sample and then it'll tell you what that is. Yeah, yeah. So there's like a few ways we can do that. Um, yeah, this is the first prototype yeah. it's going to do. And so yeah, we've, we've had successful user tests and we're, you know, we're talking about salmon because we've been focusing on seafood fraud. Because that has connotations, not just on an economic standpoint, but also um, it is very applicable to conservation. There's a lot of, you know, invasive species that are being used. And so, like, they're being, you know, farmed in areas they shouldn't be farmed. Uh, or, you know, you have a, a, a less quality fish for a less price value that's being substituted for one that is of higher quality, higher price. Mm. So, there's another one that we're thinking about transitioning to. It's this species of Asian catfish that's farmed in Vietnam mostly and uh, that river is not particularly clean so there's environmental contaminants that get into the farmed fish um, and they're very often substituted in sushi restaurants here um, and then they can make they can make a consumer not feel very good okay and so does all this information is this stored on like a database somewhere yeah yeah so we're hoping that um, you know again some of it's a little bit we're trying to answer the question, like, what are we going to do exactly? But yes, the, the goal would be, you know, you as a user, you do your test. Um, it's, it's going to be linked to some kind of um, app that can go into a 
central database, you know, maybe there's a profile that you log into. I mean, you'll, you'll have a, the data on the device itself, but the goal is that that database gets uploaded to us and we can create this spatial example, like, oh, here is the test, here is the result. Um, because, you know, right now, seafood fraud, all of the studies currently, like, they don't have a very large uh, sample size. And that's because you think about the logistics of, you know, how many tons of fish do we distribute globally and consume every day? And how do you sample enough to kind of represent how much fraud is really happening and, and based on like seasonality of certain fish. So we're hoping that it also serves as its own research study. You know, we'll have this amazing database of information that can then be used by people who are asking important questions. Mm-hmm. And then that tube that you put the swab in initially, that can also be sent back to the lab and we can conduct additional analysis on it. Like maybe you want to know the population or um, maybe, you know, you get a no as the answer. And so like, well, what is it then? And, and then we can do further analysis. And then that also gets incorporated with the data in the, in the database. So this project is part of Conservation X Labs? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, it is. Uh, but we're kind of our own little group for yeah. phylacine biosciences after the Tasmanian tiger. Yeah. Uh, there's kind of this little joke, internal joke of, you know, all of the companies that kind of come out of CXL should maybe be named after uh, extinct animals. <laughs> we'll see if that holds true. Could work. Could um, work. Yeah. So we'll eventually be our own little company. Yeah. So can you explain a bit about what Conservation X Labs is and perhaps what the vision is for that organization? Well, so the division of CXL, so I mean, inherently they are an innovation and technology company, or we are, I should say they, I am they, <laughs> and uh, our mission is to end human-induced extinction or to stop the extinction crisis, essentially, and hopefully reverse it as well. Um, and so I remember, it, it, it sounds like a very tall and almost romantic concept, but <laughs> the more I spend time with you know, this group of amazing people, the more I am, I am suckered right into this, you know, because, you know, as a scientist, a lot of us as conservationists, we're, we kind of attach to that doom and gloom. You know, we, we, I find that we tend to have a lot of really horrible information, like this whole conversation so far, I, I've said many horrible things about the realities of elephant poaching, right? And I, and I don't even, I didn't even scratch the surface as much mm-hmm. as I could. Like, we are the worst dinner party guests. We can really shut, <laughs> shut all of your hope and optimism down with kind of like, did you not know this horrible thing that happens? Um, and so the doom and gloom can really stick with us. And so what I love about this company is it is truly about like pushing all that aside. Like we know it sucks. So let's just move on from that and let's push towards, you know, what are the crazy ideas? What are the crazy solutions? Who are the people we need to talk to to help us with those crazy ideas and solutions? You know, what are, let's identify the biggest players, the biggest contributions to the crisis, and let's find ways to reverse it instead of just focusing on single species, focusing on single problem. There's reasons why focusing is important, but at the rate that we're seeing climate change, at the rate that we're seeing animals being listed as endangered and critically endangered, like we can't wait for something that's going to take 10 years to come into effect. We need to really scale and innovate as fast as possible. And we have to have passion and drive to feel like that's possible. And what I love about the people I work with is there really is this true, like, passion of, like, no one is our competitor. 
if someone wants to compete with us, we're going to talk to them and be like, no, 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 come collaborate with us instead. Love that. We don't want to compete with you. Our only competitor is extinction. That's kind of our motto. And it's fully embraced, I think. And um, so it really energizes me and it really makes me feel because like this, just making this handheld device, you know, it's, it's a crude DNA lysate you're trying to amplify in the field and make it easy for anybody to use. Like that's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And, um, but I have this amazing group of engineers that I work with and um, we just figure it out. It's just like, okay, one thing at a time, we'll figure it out. And I'm very impressed by what we've been capable of yeah. doing in just a year. I like what you said about in this space, because this is something that I've noticed as well. There does, everyone seems to be kind of one big team. And like the idea that, and I guess a typical industry, if people are doing a similar thing to, to you, they're a competitor. But in this space, like at least it seems like you guys are the same and I'm the same. I don't use that word competitor in this space because everything is just potential collaboration for me. Because if you're in the space, your end goal is conserving our planet, protecting our planet. If that's your mission, if you're trying to kind of stop the progress of someone else who's in the same field, that's not aligned with your mission. And so in order to be true to your mission, you you have to approach everything with collaboration and kind of let's do this together. Let's, let's help mm-hmm. each other out. Um, and that's the only way I think that we're going to get anything done. Yeah, so I love that you said that because that's something that I believe in is just collaboration all the way. I think that's critical. Yes, yes. And that optimism as well. So why is optimism important? Like, can we have too much optimism in this space? Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, I mean, the answer to the first part, you know, optimism is important because like I said, you know, if you look at what conservation is, I mean, I think personally, for a long time, I mean, it, it was so depressing for me, especially when I was working with elephant tusks constantly you know like they come in and they still got tissue and bone attached to them and it's it's hard and you see that some of them are, are from babies you know they're and you're like why what is it, it feels meaningless it feels like you can't understand it and so and then you know, just like you have evidence upon evidence upon evidence like you kind of become almost obsessed in terms of like here's all this stuff that's pointing to why this is a problem why aren't we doing anything about the problem and so that's kind of where optimism becomes really important because if you just focus on all the problems you're not going to become you're not going to be able to like free yourself from the fear of like all right how do we approach the problem and how do we get to a solution fast and who do I need to talk to to do that and what kind of it's just like you want to encourage ideas you don't want to you don't want to just sit in this stew of like this sucks and this sucks did you hear about this you know like of course sometimes we need that we have to like unburden ourselves with the realities but you can't progress if you're just going to focus on the problem. Uh, We have to focus on the solution. And that's where the optimism is really important because if you can see, Hey, there are companies out there, there are people out there, um, people who aren't conservationists who had this bright idea one day and they started applying it and it's having this effect. And that means that, you know, we've gotten ourselves here that, that means that we are also capable of getting ourselves back. Mm -hmm. You know, like we caused it, we can uncause it. I think that's what's really important about the optimism Yeah, is, is knowing like it's not forever. This is not the end all be all. Mm-hmm. If, if we have the passion and will and empathy and love to collaborate and work with people and to accept ideas from everybody. I think that's like another really important thing is to encourage. Yeah, exactly. That 
um, you know, I feel this way all the time because I work with all these engineers and they ha- they can fix all my problems like all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I'll complain about, you know, something that's not working with one of my pieces of equipment or it's weird and they're just like, they just look at it and they're like, oh, well, if I just do this, I think that might fix it. And, you know, so it's, it's having different perspectives is really important. Um, and that's what I mean by the empathy. You know, we need the perspective of everybody involved and that's basically everybody in the world. Yeah, I agree. I think another way to look at it as well is viewing conservation as like a marathon versus a sprint. Because if you approach this as a marathon, which it is because it's so complex, it's got to take a long time to to ultimately fix it. But if we approach it from a marathon perspective, we then consider our game plan differently. Like if we're in this for the long run, we need it. Like we need to be optimistic. Like if it's just a sprint, you can just smash it out. But if it's a marathon, you've got to be here doing this for a long time. And knowing that it makes sense just to be optimistic or else you'll burn out or else you'll lose interest or else you won't ultimately achieve that goal. So I think that's important ingredient is optimism. Also, and then also realism, like just going back to the idea of can we be too optimistic? I think just like everything, it's a balancing thing you have to balance that optimism with practicality and a range of different things as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cause I think the, the too optimistic thing is, is kind of where we get a little bit um, ult- uh, ultimatum where it's like, if you really care about the environment, like you'll become a vegan and you'll, you know, so there's, there's many reasons why that's unrealistic. I mean, yes, it would be very helpful if everyone did that, but you know, it's, it's kind of like, I'm going to switch and kind of make this analogous to the global cooling prize that CXL sponsored, um, which was, you know, we know that the earth is getting hotter. So that means more and more people need air conditioning. So what if we made air conditioning more efficient? You know, we're not going to say, no, don't buy an air conditioner because that's just going to contribute to the problem. Like, that's not realistic. You, you can be too optimistic and thinking like, well, if we can convince everybody it's bad, then they won't do it. So like, instead you have to switch to like, okay, well, instead, is there a way that we can promote the technology to become more efficient so that we're not contributing to the problem further, but we're also creating um, a solution to people that want access to this thing. You know, it's similar with like meat. You can't, you can't just uh, say like, don't eat meat, but here's an alternative that doesn't taste like meat and is awful because that will make you feel better about being a conservationist or whatnot. You know, we, we think about, we, we get kind of ingrained in our own societies and our own cultures and our own ideas it's like, well, in places where it's going to become the hottest in the world, you can't just say like, you know, you're not allowed to go buy something. You can't, you're this emerging middle class, your economy is starting to, to rise, but no, you're not allowed to engage in purchasing things that make your life better because it'll affect everybody else too negatively. So instead you say, how do we make air conditioning more effective? Uh, we know that it's only like 10% efficient. If we can make it more efficient, that's the equivalent of removing global warming by half a degree. And that's not insignificant. And that's just one thing. Forcing someone to do anything isn't a sustainable solution. You need to, all these positive changes that we're trying to make happen, we need to incentivize it somehow. It needs to make sense for, again, answering that question, what's in it for me? Like, why should I do it? What's the benefit for me? Like, there needs to be some incentive to the consumer. Otherwise, they're just not going to do it. So I think that's quite a critical challenge. We're nearing the end of the podcast. Uh, are there anything, other topics you want to bring up that we haven't covered that you want to dive into a bit? Uh, probably. I don't know. <laughs> it's hard. There's, there's so much um, 
Absolutely. This is an awesome discussion. Your questions are great. I'm hoping, hoping that we kind of cover everything on the ivory side. I, I think uh, what maybe we didn't finish up on was, you know, like we were able to, through that matching of tests, create links to, you know, between seizures and that giving a lot of evidence towards, you know, it, it's a very sophisticated and organized thing. And, but we're seeing that that's very prevalent, not just in ivory, but other types of illegal wildlife. And so it's kind of, I, there's still a lot of doom and gloom there. Like, I, I don't know what the solution is to this problem. You know, it's something that gets asked a lot. And I'm really lucky I got to work with this, uh, the Fred Hutchinson Research Center uh, here in Seattle. They, they have a student education partnership. So they actually like help create accessible, um, like biology labs for teachers to use in their high school classes and things like that. And they have an elephant one that's based on the research that we did. Um, and so I have this really cool packet that's like trying to get the students to think about, you know, all of it instead of just being like, oh, poachers are bad. And, and you know, it's trying to get them to have this empathy for, you know, who who's involved and why would a local person in Africa like or dislike an elephant? And why, you know, what would be the stance of all these people in the world? And so I, I'm really appreciative that a lot of science and conservation education is, it is trying to broaden the idea of not just like, what is the problem and why is it? horrible but it's also trying to broaden like let's bring empathy to all the people who are involved with this and how they're affected and then it was great you know I'm in this group of teachers and they were really excited because they were talking about like oh you know bees these you know bee fences are this really big innovation that they're using to help prevent conflict but bees aren't active at night and so like how do we create this you know like they're, they're kind of talking about this like biomimicry of how do we create bees at night? And um, because I'm working for this technology program, they they drew it like on a napkin. It was like that typical little like, okay, you have this drone. And it could be attached to this antenna. And it would go up and it would make a little bee noise and it would scare the elephants away. It would have like a sensor. And so it just, it's really encouraging to me that, um, you know, getting a lot of people to talk about this problem has, is also inspiring them to think of really awesome and creative solutions. And they know like, we don't know how to do this. But here's this idea. Maybe you can take it and do something with it. Mm. Um, and so that's kind of a thing that always resonates with me is, you know, you don't have to be the person that fixes it, but you might have a really great idea. You or can contribute to that conversation. I think that's a really good yeah. idea because one thing I really enjoy is brainstorming ideas. Like I'm definitely ideas man and I love, I'm constantly thinking of ideas and topics and all that kind of stuff but one thing like I occasionally do a group call with other conservationists and we kind of sit down and we kind of talk about different things a it's really cool like it's really fun having those conversations and b like a lot of good ideas come out of it and like we imp like they're not uh you know dna scanner at, at the moment but <laughs> the smaller things like how can we communicate on social media better like what's like a content campaign that we can do and every yeah. single time we we get together on a 45 minute call we think of some cool ideas that if it was just myself thinking about it it wouldn't happen or if it was just the other person thinking about it it wouldn't happen but it's like this bouncing ideas off of each other comes to something that's pretty pretty cool and pretty valuable for conservation so trying to figure out maybe we need a a way to foster more of those types of conversations somehow yeah, and I, I think that's something that we still struggle with, you know, so the Conservation X Lab, we actually host uh, what's called the Digital Makerspace, which is meant to be a, a community forum, like, um, you know, a space where you can share information, share ideas. Uh, we're in the process of renovating it and trying to make it a little more accessible. But 
you know, gaining traction and, and kind of understanding like what, what is the best way, what are the best environments to incite conversation and promote everyone contributing? You know, it's, it's, it's hard. And there are these events that occur all the time of these like hackathons and there's like these, uh, like, uh, what do they call make for the planet? You know, so they, they, they exist. They're kind of meant to be like conferences and they, you know, invite people to come in and do this. But how do we do that on a more regular basis? It's a good question. Like, how do we, how do we make it safe and accessible and like encouraging for anybody who has a thought to come join the conversation? You know, it's something we still need to work toward. Um, and we're always open for ideas there. Um, but it's, but I, before what you were saying, it just really made me feel super encouraged, like back to this optimism idea. You know, like, as you know, me as a single person, what I thought was the pathway towards making an idea possible. It's not necessarily what a group of people who comes together and brainstorms and considers and, oh, I didn't think about that perspective or, oh, I don't have expertise here. So it's back to like, we as people, we have the ability to change this. Like, right, you just get a few of us in a room and then magic happens. So um, everything we can do to make that happen, we're all for. (laughs) And due to the power of the internet, a lot of these things can happen. At least this type of action where it's communicating with someone, like I'm not limited to communicating with someone down the street. I could communicate with you in America. I can communicate with someone in Iceland or in France or wherever it may be. So a lot of these barriers that existed pre-internet don't exist now. And there's a scalability opportunity there which I think we can really tap into as conservationists and people that want to protect the planet that the communication part nowadays, that's something that is, can be so easily scaled. We need to figure out how to do that in a way that's the, the conversations that I have with my mates. It's good because it's just fun. So even if we don't come up with something, a, a good conservation idea, it's still fun. So that I think that's the important part is how can we make it fun as well? Because and then the, these conservation solutions are like a byproduct of that. Like we we win either way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so how can people connect with you online and also Conservation X Labs? Yeah, so for Conservation X Labs, you can just go to conservationxlabs.com. Uh, scroll down to the bottom of the uh, first web page, and it has all the links to our social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Uh, connect with us there. You can also email us directly there uh and then you can join it's free to join the digital makerspace there's also links through there uh i highly encourage that it's, it's a fun space to be part of and it'll change you can find me on instagram um as conservationist underscore misa and uh yeah i'm pretty much just on instagram and i need to bolster up that profile <laughs> <laughs> perfect all these links will be somewhere on social media and the caption and show notes and whatnot um final segment what message do you want to leave the conservation tribe? Mostly just don't give up. You know, collaboration is important. Passion is important. It's easy to fall into that scary, like, oh, there's just no way to fix this. And I've been there absolutely 100%. Um, yep. So it's, you know, again, like, as we know, we just had this amazing conversation together. So just reach out. There's so many people out there that, are passionate about this too. And um, you find a little, we can grow this tribe. We can create our little pockets. We really have the ability to change this.
Thanks everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please feel free to subscribe. And if you want to be an extra legend, then please also leave a review. It really does help grow the channel. Thanks again, and I will see you in the next episode.